Why do we keep telling these stories? Stories like Joseph and his coat of many colors. You know, the so-called children's stories in the Bible, the ones you may have learned in Sunday school when you were a child like I did. These stories that often get illustrated and made into cute little books and cute little artwork. Yet below the surface, these stories are never really full of cuteness, but of some of the ugliest parts of our humanity. Noah and the Ark wasn't about animals on a boat. It was, at best, about a mythical major disaster that wiped out most of humanity. Jonah and the whale wasn't about this miracle that a man got swallowed by a great fish and survived. It was actually about one man's desire for holy genocide upon an entire people. What about David and Goliath? That's the popular metaphor that makes it, even in uh, secular culture, we talk about David and Goliath stories. Well, David became the hero of this story by murdering another man. Is that the kind of thing we really want to teach our children? And then we have today's story, Joseph and the coat of many colors. It might not have actually been a coat of many colors. That's beside the point. But this story is not about the coat. It actually is about human trafficking and an attempt at fratricide. Andrew, yeah. Andrew Lloyd Webber, we heard a snippet of this. He wrote a musical about it. He called it Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. And we've been fascinated by this coat. And we like to think of Joseph as this well-dressed dreamer, the underdog, the poor innocent victim of his brother's jealousy, the guy who persevered and did the right things and went on to become powerful And he used his power to forgive his brothers and help his family out of a bind when they were experiencing famine. That's how the story is popularly told. That's how I remember this story. But in the reading today, uh, we're actually given a different title to the story. And it's nothing to do with a technicolor dream coat. In verse 2, it says, this is the story of the family of Jacob. If you accept that as the title of this story, then Joseph is not really the star at all. The coat is not the star at all, but this is a guy that's part of a larger family system that included many brothers and multiple wives and all of the conflict that you could imagine in a family with lots of siblings and lots of wives. Or husbands. That's not exclusive to wives. If we... Any family with more than one person, there's going to be conflict. And there are a lot of people in this family. If we forget everything we think we know about Joseph and we accept this new title, the story of Joseph, uh, the story of Jacob and his family, and we pay close attention to what is happening up to the point where today's reading ended with Joseph in a pit about to be sold into slavery, we might find that Joseph is actually less than heroic and less than innocent. Joseph was kind of a spoiled brat. Let's think of all the reasons why we don't like Joseph. (laughs) First of all, he was the youngest sibling with all the traits that come along with being the youngest sibling. I am a youngest sibling, so I can say that. Also, he was a tattletale. Right away in verse 2, it says, Joseph went out to check on his brothers, hard at work in the field, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Speaking of the father, Joseph was daddy's favorite. Joseph knew it. His brothers knew it. Everybody knew it. And verse 3 even says it. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his children. And because he was daddy's favorite, his father gave him this silly coat. 
not just a colorful coat, but this sort of a princely robe that signified the person wearing it was much too important to do manual labor, like working out in the fields. We could say that poor, poor Joseph, he couldn't really do anything to help that he was the youngest. He couldn't help that his father played favorites. And that would be true, except for the fact that on top of that, Joseph was an egoistic, self-centered dreamer. And who likes a dreamer? Someone who walks around with their heads in the clouds all day, eternally optimistic, while the rest of us are toiling away, being pragmatic, trying to get things done. Now, unfortunately, for whatever reason, probably for the length of the passage, the actual dreams of Joseph don't make it into this assigned reading. And just to be sure that we all really hate Joseph, here's what we missed in the dreams. First dream, Joseph dreamed that he and his brothers were all binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly, Joseph's sheaf rose and stood upright. Then Joseph's brothers, little tiny sheaves, all gathered around Joseph's sheaf and bowed down. If you're you're sensing innuendo here, it's appropriate to do so. The The story uh, in the Bible says that after Joseph told his brothers this dream, they hated him even more because of his dreams. Then he had a second dream, which is one thing, but he also had the nerve to tell his brothers his second dream once more, just like a little brother, just always going back and bothering his brothers. So he told them the second dream. He said, look, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, they were bowing down to me. So even his father, who knew there was division going on amongst his children, he overheard this dream and he rebuked Joseph. He said, what kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we all indeed bow down to the ground before you? So we can see all of the reasons why Joseph's brothers had to be annoyed with him. And perhaps we can empathize with the brothers for a moment, even though they are traditionally seen as the villains of this story. So let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Let's imagine they didn't really want to seriously hurt Joseph. They especially didn't really want to kill him or see him sold off into slavery. They wanted to do what siblings so often want to do to each other. They wanted to rough him up a little bit, scare him real good, put him in his place, exert some of the authority and control that they felt were missing in their relationship with Joseph. But that's not what happened. When the brothers saw Joseph approaching, wearing his dream coat, that was the visual reminder they needed to just send them over the edge. It reminded them of these painful divisions among them. And so the brothers said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. We will see what will become of his dreams. Those very words from verses 19 and 20, you'll find these words if you visit the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, underneath room 306, where 49 years ago Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. There's a plaque, and it reads, Behold, the dreamer cometh. Come now and slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams easy to hear this taunting refrain of these brothers even today as we hear reports of violent racist mobs popping up in charlottesville and all around us here comes the dreamers let us slay them 
and we shall see what will become of their dreams. Who are you in this story? Are you Joseph? Are you a dreamer? Do you feel like your dreams are misunderstood and despised? You're being discouraged by others. Do you feel as if your dreams have maybe been thrown away and beaten and left to die? Maybe you're the brothers in this story. The people that are hard at work, who've lost interest in dreaming and can barely tolerate it in others. Uh, The kind of people who have become jaded and have lost hope because they haven't seen their own dreams fulfilled. They haven't gotten their fair share, the recognition they crave. Uh, Perhaps they've been overlooked for their efforts. They've been ignored by the ones they feel closest to. Perhaps you are like Jacob, a father, a mother, a grandparent, a caretaker, who sees your family spiraling out of control, and you don't know what to do. So who are you in the story? It's easy to, I think, at different points of our life, see us, see ourselves in all of these characters in the story. Uh, But maybe the question that we particularly need to wrestle with in this place is, where is God in the story, and where is God in this type of story that is repeated over and over, the story of dreamers and prophets who are left to die? What's remarkable in this story, and it's not unusual in these ancient Hebrew stories, is that God is not a character at all. God makes no appearances in the story. God is not even named. There's no burning bush, no pillar of cloud, no loud voice from the heavens. And in a way, for me, the absence of God's voice in the story makes it more believable. It makes it, makes it more relatable than the stories involving all the divine pyrotechnics. If you want to find God in this story, you have to go looking for God. Or in the words of the psalmist, which we recalled in the call to worship today, we must search for the strength of the Lord, continually seek God's face, even when it's not obvious. So what exactly are we looking for when we are looking for God? And it's not something visual, it's not something audible. Perhaps we can begin by considering how the ancient Hebrew people understood God. And that is a God that is steadfast, a God of loving kindness. Not a sort of pleasant feeling of love, but a force that, though sometimes hidden, it is there underneath the surface. It's steadfast, it's gentle and persistent slowly moving the creation to wholeness and reconciliation and peace. Can we find that sense of God in weary Jacob's instruction for Joseph to go check on his brothers, even after he told his dreams and even after he realized their relationship was at a boiling point? Was there a deep desire on Jacob's part to see his children reunifying, even if it didn't seem like the wisest choice in the moment and He wasn't really sure how it would pan out. Can we see God in this story, in this chance encounter that Joseph has with an unnamed stranger? It's a very bizarre turn in this story. This unnamed stranger finds Joseph searching, and he asks him, what are you seeking? If Joseph had not encountered this man, Joseph maybe would have never found his brothers. He would have given up. He would have returned home. Everything would have been business as usual. Their relationship would have never been mended. They would have gone to their deaths with it in, with the status quo persisting. Well, what was this stranger's motivation that Joseph ran into? Did he know what story he was entering into? Was this stranger compelled to be helpful somehow? How often do we find that these chance encounters with strangers 
have the power to put our lives in a whole new direction. Can we find God in the words of Reuben, the brother who put the brakes on his brother's violent reaction to the sight of Joseph? What kept him from piling it on Joseph along with the rest of his brothers? I believe none of us would dare suggest that these situations, which clearly arise out of broken, selfish behaviors, we would not say these were ordained by God to prove a point or to teach a lesson. But I think we can see there are moments when humans do act on a faint impulse to act lovingly and justly. Is that God? Is that chance? Does it really matter? Is there a difference? So why do we keep telling these stories? Perhaps we tell these bizarre, ancient, scandalous, violent stories because these ancient stories are stories that are played out over and over again with each passing generation. It's not a stretch to see a rerun of this story in the, in the events of weekends like this one, where we watch white supremacy rear its ugly head in violent, angry, deadly displays of hate. We see photos of these angry, racist mobs expecting to see vile monsters. After all, the devil has horns and a pitchfork. But what we actually see is people wearing polo shirts, carrying tiki torches. People that look a lot like the people we encounter day to day. Not slimy monsters, but people who perhaps look like you and perhaps look like me. It's much too easy for us to understand the hurt that Joseph felt when his own brothers, the people that looked like him, found his dreams so repulsive that they would inflict death on him. This story is as new as it is ancient. And we need to hear these ancient stories because we so desperately need wisdom for our own time we still have a tendency to stifle our dreamers and kill our prophets. But perhaps most of all, we need to keep telling these stories so that we can know and that we can remember the end of these stories. Today's reading ended not at the end of the story, but actually right in the middle of the story of the family of Jacob. And the middle of the story is where we all find ourselves at some point when our dreams have taken a beating and we've been left to die in a pit. When we are living out this experience in the moment, the pit can seem like the end of the story. It's all we can see, it's all we can't imagine, it's all we can't imagine and we can't quite get beyond it. But in these desperate moments, if we remember these stories, like the story of Joseph, we can recall them, and like the psalmist said, we can remember the marvels God has done. We remember, and we can find the strength to step forward in faith, knowing that the pit is never the end of the story. In God's dream for the world, reconciliation between the human family is at the end of the story. At the end of the story, a famine becomes a feast. The world will do its best to eradicate any trace of God's dream for us, but at the end of the story, the dream is fulfilled. At the end of the story is life. At the end of the story is resurrection. So we keep telling these stories because we need to make known God's deeds among the peoples. We need each other to make known God's loving kindness so we can be ready to remind each other the end of the story when we need to hear it. When the world says, 
here comes this dreamer, let us slay him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. We're one step ahead of them. We've rehearsed this. We know what will become of the dreamer and of dreams. As a faith community, we have dreams for our society and for our world, for each other, that the hungry would be fed, that the lonely would have friends, that the hurting would have comfort, that the broken would find healing. Yet with each passing day, with wars and rumors of nuclear war, these dreams become battered, bruised, and left for dead. And that's where we are in the story, in the pit of despair. But if we fast forward to the end, Joseph's brothers were changed. It didn't happen quickly, and it didn't happen until Joseph, remembering that dream, experienced one transformation after another until Joseph himself got to the point where he could forgive and he could forgive himself and his brothers and he could seek reconciliation. To stand up here and say, oh, just hold on to your dreams may seem like easy, easy, pithy believism, but we will be shaped by one thing or another. We can choose to let the current reality shape us into cynical, callous people, lacking vision or direction, much like the brothers of Joseph. I feel like that is the camp maybe I find myself in most often. Or we can choose to let our dreams transform us into the kind of people who can create God's dream of a new earth. In times like these, and in every generation, we must keep telling these stories, and we must keep reminding ourselves that we are not at the end yet. We are only now right in the middle. We must keep singing that goodness is stronger than evil, love is stronger than hate, life is stronger than death, victory is ours. We can find the faith in the one who can see beyond our dreams and do through us even more than we could dream, ask, or imagine. So let us embrace the dream, not the pit. Let's have faith that just like God could transform a self-centered, power-seeking dreamer like Joseph into a benevolent, forgiving leader, may we too be willing to dream, to remember the dream, and to let God work out that dream by transforming us and transforming our world. Amen.